So growing up, until I was about 12 years old, we were attended Witcher Baptist Church, which is a very traditional Baptist church. Three hymns, first, second, fourth stanza. And before it became Life Church, down at 2nd and I-35, it was called Metro Church. And there was a gentleman, um, I think I was probably 12 or 13 years old, by the name of Dennis Jernigan. And he would come once a month, and he would do these praise nights in Metro Church. And my mother always has had a little Pentecostal in her. And so she couldn't get that Pentecostal fix um, at Witcher Baptist Church. And so she took me one time. Well, I went more than once, but the first time was a very distinctive is very distinct in my brain, she took me to this praise night. And all it is is what you think of, just a solid night of praise. And you got Dennis Jernigan, and he's on the platform, and he's got this keyboard, and he's doing these, some of these worship, praise and worship songs that were just blowing my mind because I'd never heard anything besides hymnal. And he got to that song that we did, Greg, that Greg sang, We Will Know we are Christians by our love. And he started the first few bars of the chords. I don't know the exact terminology, but it's like the place just went bonkers. People were hooping and shouting and getting excited. There was, I mean, this is a little more Pentecostal than sometimes. I mean, there's people moving in the spirit in the Lord out in the hall, out in the aisleways. And I just, I remember that song. So when Greg started that picking and I was looking around and going like, okay, who's going to start running? Who's going to take off? Because somebody's going to get excited. But, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with getting excited about God. There's nothing wrong about getting excited in the place of God. And there's nothing wrong with getting excited about the God we get to worship. In fact, I can take you in places in the book of Revelation that is very descriptive of how we are going to be excitedly worshiping the Lord for years and years and years to come. So thank you, Greg and Tanya and those that serve with him leading us in worship glad that you're here this morning. I hope you have a Bible with you, something preferably you can open up or even turn on, and that you'll join me in Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. If you came in, you got one of those bulletins on the back side of that bulletin. There'll be some notes as we work through God's Word together, but Exodus chapter 2 is where we're going to be at, and we're just going to look at the final three verses, the last three verses in Exodus chapter 2 this morning. There's a chunk that we've skipped over, verses 11 down through 22. We're going to come back to that next week and tie that into Exodus chapter 3. But we've been in a series of messages over the book of Exodus. A lot of times people come to the book of Exodus and they think it's just a history. They think it's just a narrative. They think it's just Old Testament stories about the Hebrew people. But yes, that is all true. But there are also a great number of principles, spiritual principles that are still that are still relevant today, that are still applicable to our life today. So whether you are five years old or whether you're 50 years old in this room, there are still, there are still principles that we find in God's Word all throughout God's Word. Now we talked last week about the providence of God and how God is able to provide his, for His will. God is able to provide for the things and the movements that He is bringing about. This morning I want to spend some time in the last part of Exodus chapter 2 looking at the timing of of God, the timing of God. Now we understand, and I've told you before about how much time we have, and you, you've probably heard people talk about how many seconds and how many minutes and how many hours each week that you have. But at the, at the basic level, regardless of your age or regardless of your circumstance in this room, we all know some, some basic things. All of us have a certain amount of time. We've all been given time. You have time to be here today. You have time on whatever you're going to do after today. We all have been given time. And we all know that time is 
finite. Once this hour knocks off, what is this, uh, 11 o'clock a.m., 11 a.m., once this time, this hour is over, that's it. There is no more 11 a.m. on February the 5th of 2023. That is it. Time is finite. And none of us know exactly how much time that we have. Remember some time ago, listening to Tony Evans, a pastor down in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and he was talking about that we gauge our age off of our birth date. He said, but what would it be like if we gauged our age off of our death date? See, some of us think we're, I'm this age and I'm this age because from birth, but we don't have, none of us have any idea how long we have. And so none of us don't really know who's actually the oldest in the room when we think about who's the closest to coming to that time of judgment before God. So we all have time. We all know that time is finite. We know that we only have a certain amount of time. And whether we like it or not, none of us, none of us, even Mr. Mr. Fox, we can't go backwards in time. We can't go forwards in time. So the only thing that we have is this time that we're living in right now. So what do we do with this time? Well, if you have a device in your pocket, some type of electronic device in your pocket with a screen, that thing has all kinds of ideas on what you can do with your time. If you go home and you have a place in your house, some of you have multiple places in your house that you have this big, large, rectangular, black frame on your wall that you push a button and all of a sudden it comes alive. It has all kinds of ideas on what to do with your time. If you have a couple of kids like Jaylene and I do, they've got ideas about what to do with your time. But we're always asking the question, what do we do with the time? And here in the last part of Exodus chapter 2, we see two elements to the timing of God. And I want you to see with me this morning that what we first see is how the people, how the people use the time they have. And then secondly, I want you to see how God uses the time that he has. Now here, let me set the setting up for you. If you haven't been here, maybe, you're, maybe you've slept since last Sunday. So here is the setting. <clears throat> you go back to the book of Genesis. You got Abraham, you got his son Isaac, and then you have Jacob and Esau. Jacob is where the lineage comes through. Jacob has 12 sons. Eventually, Jacob, his 12 sons, all of their family, 70 people in all, end up migrating from the land they were staying in that was in a, a state of severe drought and famine, destitution, if you will. They ended up going to Egypt, setting on the land of Goshen because there was food, because there were provisions, and because there was a way to sustain their life there. They get into the land of Goshen there in Egypt, and Jacob... Dies. The Pharaoh that had known Jacob and known his family, he died. And then all of a sudden, all of the house of Jacob had started to multiply. And they started to have kids. And those kids started to have kids. And they began to become very numerous and very and populate, the, populate the area around them. So the Egyptians say to themselves, self, if these Hebrews become more numerically higher or greater than us, they can become mightier than us, they can take us over. So the Egyptians say, here's what we're going to do. We are going to enslave them. We're going to make them be our workers. We are going to make them do what we want. They're going to do our construction projects. They're going to sweep our floors. They're going to pick up our trash. They're going to do this, 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 this. So the Egyptians come in and they enslave the Hebrew people. 
And as we saw in the previous Sundays, you get to Exodus chapter 1, this enslavement has been carrying on, and yet the people continue to multiply. And so we saw back in Exodus chapter 1 that Pharaoh says, okay, you know what, we are going to try to restrict the number of children that are being born, and he tries to do that. And then in the first part of Exodus chapter 2, you see the birth of Moses, and this sets in stage a whole storyline that then goes to the redemption and the rescuing of God's people. But right here in Exodus chapter 2, I think we see a hinge, a turning point, a watershed moment, if you will. Some of you all have lived long enough and you look back to moments in your life and saying that is a key identifying moment in my life where my life turned from this point on. Some of you have a salvation story, and some of your salvation stories goes as I was was, lost in my sin, headed towards hell, and then God saved me. For some of you, it's a a story of marriage. Some of you, it's a story, it's a vocation. Some of you, it's a story of sobriety. Some of you, it's a story about some type of a life event. Some of you, it's a story about moving. Whatever it may be, you can say that this was the moment that my whole trajectory of my life then changed after this. In Exodus chapter 2, we see what I think is this same picture, a turning point in the life of the people. The time had become bleak. The time had become dark. The time had become difficult and harsh. What were they going to do with the time? I'm going to read Exodus chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 23 through 25 if you'll follow along in your copy of God's Word. And let's just look at these two movements, these two events that happened in the timing of God. Verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came came up to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. There's two different elements that we see in this text having to do with the timing of God. The first one that I want you to see with me has to do with the attitude, the response, or I put there in your notes, the desperation of the people. See, they had lived for quite a number of years. We don't know exactly how many years had come up to this point. We know later on how many years total they were in Egypt, but we know they had been there for multiple generations, several generations, and yet they had come to the point that they were out of options. They were out of hope. They were out of ideas on what to do. They had become enslaved by the Egyptian people. Their burdens were overbearing. They were facing all kinds of persecution and opposition, both culturally and their and in their government and at work and all of those different places. And the people had come to the point, they finally said, God, please help us. I know it's not very long, but you will not find in the first two chapters of Exodus them crying out to the Lord for any kind of help, for any kind of hope. In fact, even when Pharaoh says, kill all the men babies, we do not see anything recorded that the people cried out for help from God. It was finally got to the point that the people had gotten to the situation in life. They had had enough, and they decided to cry out for God. The Bible here in verse 23 says, in those days the king of Egypt died. In other words, they they had a different leader, but the same trouble. See, sometimes we think in our world and we think in our lives, well, all we need is a different boss. 
All we need is a different president. All we need is a different general. All we need is a different superintendent. All we need is a different spouse. All we need is a different boyfriend or girlfriend. All we need is a different job. All we need is a different phone. All we need is a different vehicle. All we need is to understand that we are going to continue to have problems as long as we're in this world. We're going to continue to have struggles. We're going to continue to have challenges. And what do the people do here? They may have put their hopes that, hey, a new Pharaoh comes on the scene. Maybe a new government comes on the scene. Maybe a new era comes on the scene. But it says in those days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned. Now, I tried to figure out kind of a way to try to explain this groaning. Because it's not just like, a, like some, of you, some, of you, some of you students. You're like, Nah, I don't want to go to school. That's not the groaning. I've been in some labor and delivery rooms. That's not the kind of groaning either. The best explanation I could find was when, and some of you may not get this, and, I, and I'm sorry if some of you can't relate, but some of the best, best explanation I find is when you start weaning calves. And you take that mama cow and you take that baby calf and you separate them. And you put a fence between them or you put some space between them and you got that mama cow. And that mama cow is yearning for that baby. And that baby is yearning for mama. And there's that mooing and that doesn't do it justice and I'm not going to try to I'm not going to some of you are like he's going to moo I'm not mooing I'm not doing it but it's one of those things and, and if you don't know just 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 say hey preacher I got no idea and I'll be happy to take you to some places and you can hear it but it's this idea it, it's not just a oh and it's not just a oh well it is a groan that starts in your innards and it's not just a groan of your voice it's not just a groan of your mind it's a groan of your entire body. The imagery here is these people were not just tired of being told what to do. They weren't just fed up with not being able to make their own choices. They were groaning. They were hurting from the labor. They were spiritually plagued because of the oppression. And they were hurting in their spirit and their bodies. And everything about them was just groaning for relief. It says there, the people of Israel groaned. Because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. I find myself wondering how many times before they had thought, well, you know what, we've got ideas. If we'll just finish this project, then the next season of life will be easier. You know what, if we'll just negotiate with these people, maybe they'll give us some relief. You know what, maybe we can come up with some new idea, some new program, some new methodology. They had tried and tried and tried to come up with the answers themselves, and they realized they were not the answer. So what did they do? They turned to God. That's what it says in the last part of verse 23. <clears throat> Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. They'd gotten to the point in their lives that they said, Uncle. You know, we do that when we play with kids, and we do that when we're younger. You're wrestling with a parent, you're wrestling with a loved one, you're wrestling with bigger kids, and there's some of you kids may not do that anymore, but used to upon the time you'd have somebody pin, they had to say uncle. And uncle meant said, I've been beat, I've been whooped, okay. And then you and you would move on. Some of us, some of us adults, we get in the point of our life that we get so stubborn, we get so arrogant, we're not gonna say uncle. We don't care what you do. We will not 
yield. We will not give up. It does not matter what you bring at us. We are going to persevere because we're stubborn. They got to the point that they were desperate enough that they turned to God. And here's what I want you to hear from me. Are you desperate enough to turn to God today? You see, it could be that God in His timing is waiting for it to get bad enough. When I was living down in Hilton and work and, and serving down at Zanis Baptist Church, we uh, still bivocational, still electrical, and there was a, a Department of Corrections work center down there. And so there were some guys that I that I had an opportunity, the privilege with, to work that were considered inmates, but they were uh, had the the day work there. And I and I've asked them, and because I, I was intrigued, with, especially when it comes to addiction, I was intrigued in how what made a difference. Because you would see some people that would go through the programs, they go through all of the processes, and they would come out and they would say that they were reformed, that they were clean, that they were straightened out, and yet give them six months and a little bit of money, and they'd be right back in the same old lifestyle. And there were some of them that would come out, and that they would stick to it. And there would be some, there'd be a, a difference. And, I, and I, I was always, I still am intrigued. What makes that switch? And I asked him. I said, what makes the difference between you and the next guy? He said, because the next guy hasn't hit and he said, when you finally get to the point that you hit bottom and you realize there's nothing else available, and you realize that you get to that point, there is nothing else there, that you think to yourself, I am desperate enough, I will do whatever it takes. Somebody in this church made a reference the other day about it has to hurt enough. You see, brothers and sisters, I think sometimes in the life of the church, we get so comfortable in our buildings, we get so comfortable in our projects, we get so comfortable in our methodology, we get so comfortable in the business of the church, we stop being desperate for the things of God. We stop being desperate for the work of God. We stop being desperate for the hand of God. We stop being desperate for the salvation of God. We stop being desperate for the guidance of God. We stop being desperate for God's hand and spirit and unction upon this place. Why? Because we know that we can come in. We can turn the lights on. We can go through the show. We can do all of these things and we can manufacture this apart from God. And you, you see right here that these people... They had had enough with same old, same old. They had enough with the things, the way they were going. They had enough with the status quo. They had enough with just living life as it was, and they were tired, and they became desperate. I'm not saying that you got to walk around always whining and complaining with sackcloth and ashes on your head. I'm not saying you got to walk around, and all you got to do is constantly boo-hoo and groan and cry. I'm saying in your spirit, how desperate are you for You have the time today to become desperate. The problem is in this world today, we don't get desperate because we have enough things from this world to keep us from being desperate. We have enough things in this world that keep us occupied. Those little screens in your pocket, that screen that's on the wall. Those activities in the schoolhouse, those activities in the workplace. The culture around us. It's amazing how more people have an opinion about a white weather balloon floating across the United States than they do about the basic doctrines of God. It's amazing how many more people are concerned about the temporal, cultural things that, the God, that God says is going to burn up one day no matter what, and we're not worried about the spiritual things. We're more worried about the trivial fights on 
face plant, fake book, whatever you want to call it. We're more worried about those trivial fights than we are the spiritual standing of people's souls. They got desperate. Now, why do I think desperation is such a big deal? <clears throat> because there's two ditches here. There's one side over here that says, you know what? If we believe it, if we pray hard enough, and if we say to God we want this, then God will do what we want him to do. That's a ditch. Don't get there. There's another ditch over here that says we have no influence and we have no part to play in the work of God and the ways of God and the things of God. That's also a ditch. Let me give you this, this, this challenge that I've been dealing with this last week. Think back to Genesis chapter 7. God comes to Noah in Genesis 6 and says, Noah, I want you and your family to build an ark because I'm going to send a flood. And I want you to build the ark because that's going to protect you and your family during the time of the flood. Noah says, got it, God, I'll get to work. Somebody, some, some, I, I'm personally in the opinion that it took him 120 years to get the ark completed. It was that big of a project. And yet, it wasn't until the ark was finished that the rain began to fall. And the rain didn't fall until the ark was completed. Somewhere in there, you have the work of Noah and the faithfulness of Noah working in concert with the timing of God. You don't like that one? 1 Kings. 1 Kings 18. You know the story? You got Elijah. He's at the top of Mount Carmel. Remember? He's got Ahab there, and he's got all these prophets of Baal, and they build these altars, and they have an altar to Baal, and they have an altar to God. And what, is, what does Elijah do? Elijah says, "How we're going we're gonna to have a little burning party. You prophets over here to Baal, you pray, and if you're, you're a Baal, if he swallows that sacrifice up, consumes that sacrifice, then he's God. But if God does this sacrifice, he's God. And so what do they do? The worshipers of Baal, they pray all day long. Nothing happens. Then finally in the afternoon, they take the water, they, they pour down the water on the altar, pour it around the ditch. One of those things you see, there's no way that fire could last. And what happened? It says in 1 Kings 18 that Elijah prayed to God and the fire came down, consumed the water, consumed the sacrifice, consumed everything. Did the fire fall before Elijah prayed? Did Elijah pray before the fire fell? I'm not saying... Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not over here in this ditch, and I'm not saying, well, all you need to do is pray hard enough, and God will do something. And I'm also not over in this ditch saying it doesn't matter if you pray or not because God's going to do what God wants to do. I see in Scripture there is some type of a balance there between man's desperation and God's salvation. Acts chapter 4. Remember, the disciples are out there preaching. Peter and John, they heal the lame man. Peter starts preaching, 5,000 people get saved. The Sadducees, the Sanhedrin come and they arrest him and they take him in there and like, you don't talk about Jesus. Don't you say anything about Jesus. We don't like you talking about Jesus. And, and Peter and John are like, you know what? We heard you, but you know we don't work for you. And remember in Acts chapter 4, they go back and they gather up those believers and they start praying. And what happens after they pray? An earthquake. An earthquake. Did the earthquake happen because they prayed? The Bible indicates it does. Does that mean that the disciples had power to make the earthquake? No, it's when man got desperate, God was able to show his salvation. One last example, let me think, let me put in front of you. Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas, they're in Philippi. They cast out the demon out of the, the, the possessed girl. 
They get whooped. They get beat. They get stuck in prison. It says they fasten their feet in stocks. They're in the inner prison, in jail, beaten, bloodied. And it says in Acts chapter 16 that at midnight, Paul and Silas were doing what? Praying and singing hymns. See, some of you need to learn how to sing hymns. They're praying and they're singing hymns. It doesn't say worship. It says singing hymns. That's what the translation is. In the original, I think, right, Ron? The original King James. So so they're in in the dungeon. They're praying and singing hymns. And then what happens? An earthquake. Why? I I, I submit to you this morning the reason that happened was because God's people got desperate. And when God's people got desperate, God proved himself faithful. Now I think sometimes, I think sometimes in this world that we're living in today, we're not, we're too busy doing our own thing, trying our own way, trying to figure out our own problems and our own solutions that we're not taking time to listen to God. We're not taking time to look on how God provides. We're not taking time to wait on how God is going to provide what we're asking him to to provide. Because we're too busy. So you see the people here in Exodus chapter 2, they are desperate. They get to the season of life. They get to the time of their life. They're like, God, we have no other help. We have no other hope. God, we need you. Verse 24. And God. Now there's going to be some things here. Seminary word. (coughs) Seminary word is anthropomorphic. That's just a fancy seminary word they put in textbooks to make seminary students have to buy these textbooks. And they make us have to read these textbooks to understand these textbooks. Here's what this word means. It's when you talk about God and you give him physical or creature-like attributes. Okay? So if I'm talking about God, God's ears, or I'm talking about God's heart, or I'm talking about God's feet, that's anthropomorphic language. So here in Exodus chapter 2, verse 24 and 25, you see these references. Now why do I bring this up? Because God is a spirit. So God doesn't have ears like we have ears. He doesn't have eyeballs like we have eyeballs. But when you see this language, it's not necessarily being blasphemous, and it's not wrong. It's just putting it in categories that we can understand and we can grasp. So what does this say? What is is the response of God? Verse 24. And God heard their groaning. God heard them. God heard their prayers. God heard their petitions. God heard their pleas. God heard their voices. You know, it gets even worse than that for me because God hears our thoughts. That's, 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 that's not always comfortable for me. God hears my thoughts. God hears my murmuring. God hears my grumbling. God hears my attitude. God hears me. And not just that he heard. It goes on. He heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant. So God heard. God remembered. What did he remember? Well, you might write this down there in your notes. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 13. And in Genesis 15 and 13, he's telling Abram, going to be Abraham, he is telling him, I'm going to make you in a great nation, and I am going to do great things with your lineage. And but, 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 they're going to be a season of time that they're going to go to Egypt. That's 1513. They're going to go to Egypt, and they're going to spend 400 years there. But then I'm going to bring them out, and I'm going to bring them back 
back to this land, but I'm making this promise to you, Abram, that I will do this. You go fast forward to Genesis chapter 26 and verse 4, and he's talking to Isaac. And this time, the son of Abraham, God comes to Isaac and says, Isaac, don't worry. You have two children, but out of the line of Jacob, I will multiply you, and your children will be as many as the, the grains of sand on the seashore. Genesis 46, Jacob is trying to decide whether he's going to go to Egypt or he's going to stay right there in Canaan. And God comes to Jacob and says, Jacob, don't worry. You and your family are going to go. And it's not always going to be sunshine and roses, but I will take care of you. I will provide for you, and I will bring you back to the land of promise. God remembered. God has not forgotten his promises to his people. God has not forgotten his promises to the church. God has not forgotten his promises to save those that seek his face. God has not forgotten. It says God heard, God remembered, and then it goes on there. In the, in the passage, it says in verse 25, God saw the people. I want you to know this morning, friend, brother, sister, I want you to understand God sees you. I don't know the situation you're in. And some of you this morning are going to be in a circumstances that are tragic are hard, are difficult. Some of you may be in circumstances this morning, you're like, Spence, you have no idea the things that I'm struggling with in here and in here. I do not know, but I do know who does, and that is God. God has not only heard you, God remembers, and God sees you. But here is the best one, in my opinion, at the end of verse 25, and God knew. Now, I wish I could go to Moses, who wrote this, and say, knew what? Knew, knew, knew what? Some of you husbands, I, this may be a support group time, but any of you husbands ever get in a conversation with your sweet spouse, and she says half a sentence, and she stops saying it out loud, but thinks that you heard the rest of the sentence? Has anybody else ever been in that spot? No, no, y'all are just going to leave me hanging. Sweet men that you are. But it's one of those things that, I, and maybe I'm the only one in the room, but you know, you get, and maybe some of you women, you got the problem from the guy, I don't know, but you get your spouse, and your spouse starts to say a sentence, and they stop mid-sentence. The sentence kept going in their mind, but they stopped saying it out loud. That's hard to understand in communication, when the person that is speaking continues to speak silently and the person that's listening cannot hear the rest of the sentence. And that is what we get here to what Moses is saying when he says, and God knew. And then he puts a period there and he stops. And I think to myself, God knew what? And maybe he left it there so that we could fill in the blank. For our lives today. Maybe something like this. God knew what they needed. God knew what they wanted. God knew what they would do. God knew what he would do. And God knew exactly what was going to take place. All the way that he was going to bring them out of that bondage there in Egypt. And he was going to take them to the Red Sea. They were going to watch God through the, work, through the hands of Moses part the Red Sea. They were going to cross the Red Sea. And then it tells us in Exodus 14, or I'm sorry, Exodus 15, that three days later they're grumbling against God. 
God knows all of that. God knows that your failures, God knows your successes, God knows what you need, God knows what you want, God knows your future, God knows what is best for you, God knows how he's going to provide for the things when you are submitting to him. God knows all of these things God knew because God is God. You know, sometimes we start finding ourselves in a spot in life where I start looking around going, you know what? I need more answers. I need more of this. And I need more of that. And yet you come to this passage. We don't need more information or more answers. We need more desperation. And I submit to you, and if you come back next week, hopefully we'll continue this thought. But what happens from this point on, when the people of God got Desperate for God. God knew that they were ready for salvation and for a redeemer to come. And that is why you get into Exodus chapter 3 and you see being Moses being called from the middle of the desert to go back and rescue the people. Because the people had finally got to the point that they said, God, we need you. And God said, I've just been waiting for you to say that because I've already got a plan in place. I've got a man in the desert. I've got a man set aside. I've got a man already prepared. I am just waiting for you to get to the point that you're willing to follow and listen to me. It starts with us being desperate, and it starts with us waiting on the timing of God. So the people cry out. The people cry out. Almost done. The people cry out, and they're crying out. They're groaning to God, saying, oh, God, we need this. Oh, God, we need this. And then when did God answer? The day of? The next day? Did God tell them, okay, wait. 40 days, and I've got, I've got something coming. Did he tell them, wait 60 days? No, we have no idea. Some of you are looking down the Bible like, well, maybe, maybe it says. It doesn't say. What we do know is, is after the people got desperate, God knew. God said, okay, this is going to take place. And then you get the calling of Moses, and God says to Moses, all right, Moses, go back, rescue my people. We don't know if that was a week. We don't know if it was two weeks. We don't know if it was six months. We don't even know if it was a year. We do not know. God knows. And the only thing that we need to understand is that when we are desperate enough for God and submit ourselves to God, God's timing is better than our timing. And yet, we don't get desperate enough because we go to God and say, God, I've got a need. you got 24 hours. And then after 24 hours, I'm going to go someplace else. Oh, God, I've got a need. Oh, God, I need you. Oh, God, please help me. And then a week goes by. I guess God's not going to answer me. And we go on. We have no idea. I've heard some people before. I'm going to fast until I get an answer from God. It's amazing how fast God answers when you're hungry. But sometimes we start to short circuit the timing of God. We start to short circuit how God brings and you know, maybe one of those things that you need to say, God, I've got a family member. God, I've got a loved one that they are lost and they're headed for hell. God, would you please save them? And then we just say, God, we're going to continue to pray until you save them. We're going to continue to pray. And we're not going to say, God, you've got six hours, six days, six months, or six years. We're just going to pray because we're desperate. Because we know the only person that can save that loved one is you. Amen. So we're just going to pray. Because we're desperate for God. So how do we apply this to our lives today? Two application points, and then we're going to go home. First one is this. Your hope reveals faith. It's a matter of what you hope in. What are you hoping in? Are you hoping in a bottle? Are you hoping, hoping in a bank account? Are you hoping in a relationship? 
Are you hoping in a vocation? Are you hoping in yourself? Are you in hoping in a TV personality? Are you hoping in your own wisdom or in a book or in self-help knowledge? What you're hoping in reveals where your faith is at. And sometimes we start to have all kinds of hope that the hope is going to be found in this next program. I guess confused sometimes because especially within the Southern Baptist work, it seems like every couple years we have this new evangelism program that comes out. And oh my stars, this new evangelism program, that is the secret weapon. And man, if everybody just get trained, of course you got to buy all this material, and you got to buy all these books, and you got to have these special people come in that know just how to do it, and you do all this, employ this methodology, employ this program, and boy, we're just going to see all kinds of people get saved. Well, what happened to the last program and the program before that? You know, maybe, maybe our hope should not be in a program, and our hope should be in a Savior. Maybe some of you came in here this morning thinking that if I just go to church, I'll feel better. And while I hope that you do feel better because you came to church this morning, I would like to tell you this morning that when you leave this church the same as you came in, you're going to feel the same as before you came to church. And it's only when you get your relationship with God where God desires for it to be will you notice a change that lasts in your life. So hope, hope reveals faith. But then this last one, and this is just for you, God knows. And I put this in your notes, and I put this up behind me on the screen. Because normally I have a blank there for you to fill in. But maybe this morning you just need to think to yourself, what is it that's burdening your heart? What is it that is a groan of your heart? What is it that you need to remind yourself of that no matter what I'm going through, God knows? And maybe just take the moment this morning to just write in. God knows this. I'll tell you what I wrote down. I wrote down here in the blank, God knows the possibilities. What I mean by that is God knows the possibilities that he has for this community that he has for this faith family, that he has for this congregation of believers. God knows the possibilities. God knows what he can do with people come together that are desperate for him. It says in Acts chapter 2 that 120 people gathered in the upper room. And they got desperate for God and they got desperate in prayer. And what sparked was Pentecost. The unction of the Holy Spirit fell upon the people and 120 people got convinced that this God thing was real and they changed the entire known world. They didn't just change Wellston. They didn't just change a church. They changed an entire known world. What would it be like if you and I in here this morning said enough with being dependent upon the things of this world. Enough with saying that this world has our help and our hope. Enough with saying that this world will satisfy and take care of our needs. What would it be like if you and I this morning decided to say we're going to be desperate for God and we are going to say, God, here we are. Whatever you need, whatever you want, however you would have us to live, we will do what you say because we're desperate for you. How could God use us? 
to reach a community. To reach a region. Just to reach our families. They got desperate. And when the time was right for them to turn to God, God was ready to respond to his people. So here's my assurance to you this morning. If you're here this morning and you've never turned to Christ, oh, you've been in and out of church, you've done this whole church thing, you know what this church idea looks like, but you've never come to a point that you've said, I'm a sinner, I need to be forgiven of my sins, I want to be forgiven, and I want Jesus to save me. Maybe you've never come to that point. I can promise you that this morning when you come and you repent of your sins, you confess your sins, and you turn to Christ, He will save you. Or maybe you're here this morning and you know that you're saved, but you know there's some decisions you need to make. you got some priorities out of whack. You've got some, you got some time that you need to reshuffle. You've got some resources that you need to commit back to God. There's some things in your life that you need to clean up. There's some things in your life that you need to stop. There's some things in your life that you need to start. There's some changes that you need to make in order to be right where God wants you to be. And you just say, you know what, Spence? I'll just do it later. No, the time is now. I can assure you that when you come to God and say, God, here I am in faithful submission to you, God will use you and God will bless your obedience. Maybe there's a decision that we need to make as a church. Break out of the old traditional ruts. We can't do that because we're too small. We can't do that because we don't have the facilities. We can't do that because we don't know how. We don't do that. We can't do that because we've never done that before. We can't do that because we're too scared what people might think. We're, too, we're not going to do that because we don't know what we'll do if it doesn't work. Maybe it's just a church. We need to say, God, what do you want us to do? God, we're going to be desperate. And God, if that means we've got to dress the van up as a clown and have him do some juggling acts to get people in the doors... We'll let Van pray about that. We'll just, we'll just do whatever, whatever you call us to do, Lord. Because we want to be desperate. Because we got over 200 kids setting up in this school system. And the majority of them don't have a right relationship with Jesus. We got over 10,000 people living within 10 miles of this church. And over 75% of them don't have a right relationship with Jesus. Every single one of you in this room, you know somebody that's lost, that needs Jesus. What happens if we got desperate enough to groan for the work in the hands of God? Bow your heads with me.